Thank you for leading us in worship this morning. Um, I don't know, do you ever go in summertime, you walk along the beach, and then you find a really nice stone or shell, and you pick it up, and you put it in your pocket, you know, and you, uh, and you save that. Maybe you put it on your desk for a while or, or somewhere. I, I was thinking this morning as we, were si- as we were singing and some of the scriptures that were shared, Psalm 34, I thought, oh, I should take that, put that in my pocket for later on in the week, or a different song. And uh, it's really helpful to do that. This last song we sang, the doxology. Praise God. I was reminded, 99 years ago, my grandparents were fleeing Russia on a train. And when they crossed the border out of Russia, which then represented for them freedom, uh, that those believers that were traveling together broke out in song, singing that song. That's a song my grandparents brought with them. And we would sing it before every meal at family gatherings, but I didn't know the story, that story that I just told you behind that until I was visiting my grandmother in her early 90s. And she shared the story behind it. And I thought, no wonder you keep that in your pocket or in your heart, right, to carry with us. Before I get to the message this morning, let's pray and thank God for those gifts that he gives. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that you are such a great giver. Lord, you give us uh, words that we need. I think about the Israelites in the wilderness and how you gave them manna every day. And you were teaching them that you are the God who provides for us even in the most harsh conditions of life when we feel like we have, we've run out of hope, when we feel like we've, we've run out of the will to keep persevering, when we feel like we've run out of uh, forgiveness or compassion, and yet you are the God who is there to provide the manna. That is what we need, Lord, to sustain us. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of your scripture And those verses, Lord, that that come to us and they strike us, we know we've got to hang on to this. Or a song and a phrase, a word of encouragement or challenge from someone. Lord, this morning we want to thank you for those gifts that you have given, that we would collect those, that we would carry those, that we would savor them, that we would draw out of them all of the spiritual nourishment, Lord, that you have designed them for and to give us. And Lord, also that we would have opportunity to share those good gifts with others, that they too, Lord, could be enriched for your glory. Amen. Oh, I dropped my papers, and I'm just making sure they're in the right order here. Elaine was said, said, you know, you should make sure they're in the right order. She was right. I should do that. Well, last week I started a new series, if you were here, entitled, What If Jesus Had Never Come? And we did a little bit of a thought experiment. Uh, I was telling my one son about this, my son Nathan, goes to a different church, and he said, oh, Dad, that sounds like it's a wonderful life. 
you know, it's a wonderful life, George Bailey, you know, what if he had, uh, you know, had never lived and what that would be like? I said, yeah, it's kind of like that. But Jesus is by far the greatest and most positive influencer of all time. Yet religious skeptics and atheists have so loudly and repeatedly claimed religion is evil that many people have come to believe it's true. That the world would be a far better place without any and every God delusion. But when it comes to Christianity, their claim is woefully inaccurate and historically ignorant. In nearly every area of human existence, medicine, science, education, art, charity, the value of human life, the, uh, the elevation of women, and more, life is measurably better because Jesus came with leaven-like influence. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be exploring Christianity's impact on science, sex and the family, the value of human life, and today's topic, health care. In his book, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born?, James Kennedy tells the story of how in 1931 some missionaries started a Christian shortwave radio station in Quito, Ecuador in South America that ministered throughout Latin America and beyond. Actually went with the, to Bible college with a couple fellows whose parents worked at this radio station. Well, after a while, after that radio station started, impoverished people from neighboring countries who had heard the radio station and the message, came to the radio station seeking medical help. They somehow assumed that those people who were ministering to their souls would also minister to their bodies. And taking Jesus as their model, in the 1950s, this radio station, HCJB, as it was called, decided to add a hospital to its mission. And it has become one of the chief hospitals in that country. This is one of thousands of examples of the impact of Christ and his followers that they have had on meeting the health needs in the name of Christ. I can only imagine what conversations took place at HCJB when these poor people started showing up and expecting health care. Right? Uh, I think the believers undoubtedly looked to the life and teaching of Jesus. I mean, all four of the Gospels tell us stories that show Christ was concerned for people's spiritual condition and their physical well-being, right? Uh, for example, Matthew chapter 4. We learn that Jesus traveled to many towns and villages preaching the good news of God's kingdom and, it says, healing every kind of disease and sickness. He healed the blind, the lame, the deaf, and even lepers who were considered contagious and uh, were treated as outcasts. Jesus was truly a holistic healer. And his, ass, his, his acts of physical healing were never divorced from concern for people's spiritual well-being as well. When Jesus commissioned and he sent out his disciples to carry on his ministry, it included Caring for people, body, and soul. Matthew 10. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. 
And he also told his followers, you may recall, in Matthew 25, that whatever they would do for the least of these people, they would be doing it for him. One of the lines in that story that he tells is, and I was sick and you looked after me. Yeah, in the, in the eyes of the poor. And in the decades and centuries that follow, Jesus' followers sought to follow his teaching and example in the places wherever they lived. Now, one of the great anomalies in the ancient world was that the Greeks and Romans, I mean, they are famous for literature, art, science. No hospitals. Not known for that. Now, while they built large temples in honor of their numerous gods and constructed vast aqueducts to carry water and massive road systems even in existence today, there is no record that they built hospitals that is especially for the general populace. Naturally, people have wondered, why? Why the ancient world never built hospitals? And the sad truth is that paganism, which celebrated celebrated strength and despised weakness, had no real basis for compassion. The world the Christians entered during the Greco-Roman era had what uh, Dr. Alvin Schmidt describes as a colossal void with respect to care for the sick and dying. Dionysius, a Christian bishop, describes how pagans treated people who were suffering during an Alexandrian plague in about 250 AD. The pagans, he said, thrust aside anyone who began to be sick and kept aloof even from their dearest friends and cast the sufferers out upon the public roads half dead and left them unburied and treated them with utter contempt when they died. Now, one might be tempted to believe that his remarks reflect a Christian bias. After all, he was a judge who had become a Christian. uh, But Theodosius, the uh, Greek historian, agreed. He said, this is a typical response. The pagan emperor Julian, about a century later, lamented how the Romans often fled in fear and left the sick to die without care. So we have the same theme over hundreds of years. They fled not only out of fear, but also because the Romans saw helping a sick person as a sign of human weakness. Think, kind of a a survival of the fittest mentality. But Christians, in the light of what Jesus taught and modeled, believed that they were not only serving the sick, but Christ himself. And Dionysius tells us the Christians, when it came for caring for the sick and dying, ignored the danger to themselves. He writes, Many of our Christian brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, cheerfully accepting their pains. He also will talk about how many were indeed infected with the plague that they were trying to help these people. And they too became gravely ill. But Dionysius said that when they died, they departed this life serenely happy, he said. Because they knew that Jesus had conquered death. The great fear in the ancient world. It was a great testimony. And so Christians filled the pagan void that had been largely 
that had largely ignored the sick and dying, especially during the plagues. And in doing so, they established the principle that to help the sick was not a sign of weakness, but a sign of strength. This, as a sociologist turned historian, uh, Rodney Stark, he said, this was revolutionary. And during the first three centuries, the followers of Christ, they were subjected often to oppression and even severe persecutions. And so the most that they often could do was to care for the sick where they found them. And in many instances, then they would take them into their homes. They didn't have church buildings as we would have. But when Constantine became emperor of the Holy Roman Empire in the early 4th century, Christianity was suddenly allowed to flourish in new ways. And the first ever gathering of church leaders at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. It was famous for its theological discussion. There it was that they confirmed that Jesus was fully divine as the Father was. The Nicene Creed comes out of that. But also included on that occasion was not only the Nicene Creed, this is what we believe about the Father and Son and Spirit. They were also had an agreement that the bishops would establish a hospice in every city that had a cathedral. If you've got a church cathedral that you're establishing now, you can build it, build a hospice. And many of the early Christian hospitals or hospices, they're not what we think today of as hospitals. Their most important function was to, to nurse and heal the sick, but they also provided uh, lodging for the poor and shelter for, or shelter for the poor and lodging for Christian pilgrims, people who needed to travel. They took those principles of practicing hospitality very seriously. And the first hospital was built by St. Basil in Caesarea Cappadocia about AD 369. It was one of a large number of buildings with houses for physicians and nurses, workshops, and industrial schools. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Why those? Well, see, the rehabilitation unit and workshops gave those with no occupational skills, maybe they had become maimed or could no longer do what they had done before, it gave them opportunity to learn new skills so that they could have a trade. So they could be healed as a whole person, if you will, while they were recuperating. And the building of Christian hospitals continued. According to Jerome in 375, a wealthy widow by the name of Fabiola donated all of her considerable wealth to build a hospital in the city of Rome itself, to which she brought the sick from, uh, from the streets in Rome. And by the 6th century, hospitals had become a common part also of monasteries, at which point hospitals were firmly established in most of the Christian world. And it was Basil's vision and dedication to care of the sick that had a leaven-like effect in the centuries that followed. So Gregory of Nicaea, a hundred years after Basil, said of Basil's care for the sick. He took the lead in pressing upon those who were men that they ought not to despise their fellow men or to dishonor Christ, the head of all, by their inhumane treatment of them, but to use the misfortunes of others as an opportunity of firmly establishing their own lot and to lend to God that mercy of which they stand in need at his hands. 
And so to be Christ-like. And Christ's mercy and compassion, along with his view of the preciousness of the human soul and body, provided the driving force behind Christian medical care. Nearly 400 years after the Christians began building hospitals, their practice drew the attention of the Arab world. Arabs in the 8th century. Impressed with the humanitarian work of Christian hospitals, the Arab Muslims began constructing hospitals in Arab countries. And thus, Christ's influence moved his followers to build and operate hospitals that then began to permeate into the Arab Islamic world, demonstrating once more this leaven-like influence of Christ and his followers. As uh, Alvin Schmidt notes, it changed a world in which the sick were once large, largely left to fend to themselves to one in which now, given humanitarian medical care, a practice not previously known. And then I love this line. He says, Christ's parable of the Good Samaritan had become far more than merely an interesting story. It was like a mustard seed planted but allowed to grow and or like leaven to permeate. I could spend time on a summary of the hospitals in the 13th and 14th century. Hospitals in the New World. Uh, interesting, there's a short history of uh, mental health care. Medical nursing was a Christian innovation. You've heard of Florence Nightingale. That's uh, worth a read. The Red Cross. Did you know that was founded by Jean-Henri Durant? who ended up receiving the first ever Nobel Peace Prize for his work with the Red Cross. Well, someone from our community group, thank you, Sidiro, uh, sent me an email this week entitled, the title on his email was God at Work. And it included a link with an interview with a Christian surgeon whose story has just been made into a movie called Sight. It's not yet available in Canada, but I hear it's coming. And even in the two and a half minute short clip that I will be showing you, you will see not only what drew him from atheism to faith in Christ, but also the leaven-like influence of Christ in him and then through him today. Can you play that, please? I came to America with only $50, knowing no one in this country could hardly speak English even though I was poor, but I was happy because I was free. Dr. Ming Wang is an internationally acclaimed laser eye surgeon who has pioneered multiple vision correction techniques. His life story is told in the film Sight. When he came to America as a poor Chinese immigrant, he saw only opportunity and eventually earned a PhD in laser physics from MIT and an MD from Harvard. I came from China as an atheist I believed nothing but science. I was studying the structure of eye in med school, and I realized that the human eye is so complicated. Trillions of trillions of cells has to line up perfectly for visual signal capturing and interpretation. If any one of those cells gets out of line, the person will be born blind. So I had a big problem, and the atheist me at the time, that how could so many cells form in such a short period of time out of randomness. So I kept on asking a professor, and he said, Ming, what's a cross street? I said, that's, that's a car. He said, what's the difference between a car and a human eye? I said, human eye is a lot more complicated. He said, okay, 
Can you imagine how random pieces of metal form itself into a car? I said, no way. And he said, how about human eye? So right there, he opened a window in my life, making me realize that it was formed with a specific purpose for vision. So there's a designer, a creator behind that. And I start with my journey, um, believing first there's a creator, there's a God, and later on, more specifically, the God is in the form of Jesus Christ. And Christ has died for our sin so that we could have a chance for eternity. Dr. Wang began his career at Vanderbilt University in Asheville, Tennessee. Years later, he started the Wang Vision Institute, establishing a foundation to restore sight for orphans from around the world. So far, I've done 55,000 laser vision corrections, including on over 4,000 doctors. Our foundation, we've been able to help many, many patients from around the world, from over 55 countries, uh, dedicated to blind orphan children. <laughs> yes, that's worth <laughs> praising the Lord for, isn't it? As I said, that uh, it's from a movie called Sight, and it's supposed to be coming out in Canada. So if anybody knows exactly when and where, how to access that, without having to go across the border, you can let me know, and I will uh, let you know. There is one more area of Christian impact on healthcare that I would be remiss if I failed to mention. Preventative medicine. I got near the end of my message, and then I was reading something that's like, preventative medicine, how could I, you know? I mean, it's widely recognized today that the best medicine is preventative medicine. We have the proverb, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. At least we have that in our culture, or probably a, a proverb like that in other cultures as well. Christ has helped millions and millions and millions of people who do not misuse or abuse their bodies because they follow him. The Bible teaches us that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6. And the Apostle Paul reminded his followers, the followers of Jesus in the city of Corinth, you are not your own, he said. You were bought at a price. That is the price, the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And taking seriously this Christ-like view of one's body as the temple of the Holy Spirit makes a significant impact on one's lifestyle and health. In her book, Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin looks at, looks at uh, a 2016 U.S. Today article by Harvard School of Public Health professor Tyler Vanderweel and journalist John Sinniff, entitled, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. The article begins, If one could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost... What value would our society place on it? Well, the authors then go on to outline the mental and physical health benefits that are correlated with regular, regular religious practice, participation, that is, going to church. And research suggests that those who regularly attend services are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, are less likely to commit suicide, have a greater purpose in life, are less likely to divorce, and are more self-controlled. They conclude, religion is often perceived negatively today 
But the effects of religious participation are often profoundly positive, a point too often neglected or ignored. The health benefits can be added to a long list of virtues found with an active religious life. So, in conclusion, what should we do? We should do what uh, someone did before when we saw that. We should praise the Lord that Jesus did come. Amen? What most impacted me as I was preparing this is how much that shift in mindset of Christian compassion, Christ-like compassion, we would say, that was the seed that when it was allowed to flourish, when Christians took that seriously and acted on it, had a profound transforming effect. I mean, Jesus had a profoundly transforming effect already when he came. The value that he placed on people as whole people and how he restored them. Thank you, God, that you sent Jesus. And secondly, there was actually a a title, one article that was also reviewing some material. And uh, their conclusion was, for good health, go to church. Uh, I just add, for good health, go to church and follow Jesus. Follow Jesus in terms of actually taking his word seriously and living on it. I think it was G.K. Chesterton said, um, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting, you know. He said, it's been found difficult and therefore left untried. He's right. Because when it's been tried, when it's been put into effect, in our own lives and it's in, in lives of others, that is what makes all the difference in the world. And so I, I want to, as I invite the, the worship team to come up, I want to invite you. Maybe you haven't actually let Jesus take root in your life. Just as Dr. Wang shared, first that was a window that was given him. Maybe Maybe we are really designed by God. And he came to understand that we are designed by God, that we are also at odds with God, that there is this thing called sin, that we have rebelled against God. And yet God is there not to condemn us, but he sent Jesus to forgive us, to restore us to relationship, so that we could really have a clean start and to start over. And he, gave, he gives us the gift of his spirit to then help us to to take what God has put into our lives with this leaven-like impact in our own lives, but also in our places, in our families, in where we live and work and play. And so I want us to give you opportunity to pray. Let's pray together. First, Lord, we want to say thank you. Thank you because, Lord, you gave us a window today and how lost we and our world would be how cruel and bitter without you. The instincts, our very instincts of compassion and wanting to care for others, Lord, ultimately that is seeds that come from you. And we thank you. And Lord, our prayer then is that you would take root even more, maybe for the first time, or more deeply in our lives. That we would allow the impulses of your spirit 
to truly do their work in us, changing our hearts and minds and attitudes, that we might have, Lord, as your scripture tells, that we might have the mind of Christ in us, that we might have the heart of Christ at work in us. That, Lord, we might be a good news people for the world. Thank you that this is all you're doing, and yet, Lord, you so long for us to experience and to be your participants and to be your partner people that you call and invite us, Lord, to be your hands and feet in this world for your glory and for the good of all people. Amen.